Lord. My shepherd strong, I shall not want you. guys good to see you all here this morning again uh, great to have mike and sue here mike and sue were, were this very stabilizing do you remember the some of you remember the times we were getting kicked out of one place and we got kicked out of another and i, I always said only only mike could get up only mike could get up and deliver that news as if it were good news and uh, but very stabilizing influence during those very turbulent times in in trinity heights uh, beginnings um well, to reflect on and think through and pray for the situation in Ukraine. Um, many years ago now, we stayed with a wonderful family, uh, Victor and Natasha and their daughter, Irina, and they're wonderfully hospitable, uh, kind, kind people. And, you know, I remember he told me this story of how he, when he was 10 years old, during the, the Soviet time, uh, he'd gone into the library and he found this Charles Dick, copy of Charles Dickens' Pickwick Papers. And he knew it shouldn't be there. It should have been purged from the collection. And he just found it. He was reading it. He found it really funny. And so he decided, look, if I, don't, if I leave this here and someone finds it, it's, it'll be gone. It'll be purged. So he stole it. And he smuggled it out of the, the library and, and kept it as sort of memento from, from those Soviet, Soviet days. But um, here, here they are again uh, facing uh, this sort of aggression. And it just so happens uh, that uh, we land today in Matthew chapter 5 in our series where Jesus says these words. And as we pointed out many, many times before, um, Jesus isn't speaking here into a, a vacuum, but he's speaking here into the context of a very extremely brutal uh, invasion and occupation and so Jesus says, into that context, he says, You have heard it's that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So uh, this is Etty Hilsman. Uh, she was a Dutch Jew. Uh, who wrote letters and diaries which were discovered quite by chance about 40 years after they were originally written. 
In July 1942, the Nazis had started to transport uh, Jewish people uh, from Amsterdam to this camp in Westerbork. Uh, Etty's name didn't appear on the list of people to be deported, so her friend said, you've got to leave. You've got to run, get out of here, or go into hiding. Uh, in fact, at one point, some of her friends actually tried to kidnap her in order to try and save her and, and, and protect her. But she insisted, no, I've got to stay behind, and I've got to look after the people who've been left by loved ones, and I've got to go into those camps and care for the people who are in there. And so quite out of her own volition, she went into uh, the camp at Westerbork and started working in the hospital right, right there. Now... When Westerbork had been designed to house about 1,500 Jewish people who had fled Germany originally, but now the, the war had escalated, the deportations were going on. There were now, when she got there, there were 40,000 people crammed into this place designed for 1,500 people, into these barracks where there was despair and there was disease and, and suicide was rampant. And every Monday, the train would pull up and people would be loaded on and sent to Auschwitz. They knew this was the, the anteroom to hell. At the time, she was given a special permit so she could move in and out freely. And so she would take letters from people inside the camp, take it to uh, loved ones and family and friends outside the camp, let them know what was going on. And then she, she would smuggle medicine, in, in, much-needed medicine, in, into the camp from the outside world. Then one day, she discovers that her pass has been revoked and she herself is now a prisoner uh, in, this, in this camp herself. And writing from the camp, she says this, there must be someone to live through it all, to bear witness to the fact that God lived even in these times. The truly striking thing about her late entries during this time is that she absolutely refuses to hate. And numerous times she talks about how this experience had not changed her heart and mind, had not changed her conviction that life is a beautiful gift, an amazing gift. There was no pretense or denial of the horrors that she was seeing. In fact, she writes very sensitively about the, the tragedy that she experienced on a day-by-day, -day, sometimes moment-by-moment -moment basis. And, and she, she describes the hard and terrible faces of the, the guards. She could feel the absurd contradiction between good on the one hand and evil on the other. She could feel the absurd contradiction of between beauty and ugliness, between kindness and, and cruelty. She writes, The sky is full of birds. The purple lupins stand up so regally and peacefully. Two little old women have sat down for a chat. The sun shining on my face. And right before our eyes, mass murder. The whole thing is simply beyond comprehension. What were Etty's spiritual resources? Where did she draw this unusual perspective on things? She was of Jewish heritage, and, and she certainly wasn't a professing Christian. But some years earlier, her therapist had, had introduced her to the New Testament, to the writings of the early church father Augustine, and to the uh, Christian existentialist Fyodor Dostoevsky. And so at the core of her convictions about the situation she was in in life. Now, the core of her convictions was a, a, an interest, no, it was more of an obsession with the New Testament. And not just the New Testament, but particularly with Matthew's gospel. My dear Matthew, she called him affectionately. You know, it'd be great if we could muster up that kind of affection for the, for the Bible and, and, and the authors, right? My dear Matthew, she writes. 
And, and so she, she was obsessed with Matthew's Gospel, but even more specifically with the Sermon on the Mount that we're going through right now. And even more specifically, she was obsessed with this command right here, Jesus' words, love your enemy. Forty-three times it appears in her writings, in the letters and diaries that she was keeping. She says, now is the time to put into practice, love your enemies. And if she's not quoting Jesus' words directly, she's quoting someone else quoting Jesus' words. So, for example, she writes down uh, this, copying this into a diary from Dostoevsky. Every atom of hatred added to the world makes it an even more inhospitable place. There's no room to add one more atom of hatred as far as she's concerned. And again, I believe childishly perhaps, but stubbornly, that the earth will become more habitable again only through the love that the Jew Paul described to the citizens of Corinth in the 13th chapter of his first letter. Well, there's so much else that she wrote, but this is just enough for us to get a sense of the very Jesus-shaped person that she was. And from one perspective, her perspective, Eddie's perspective, which is a thoroughgoing Jesus perspective, actually makes no sense, right? Love your neighbors, yes. Love your friends, absolutely, and your family. But why does Jesus expand the circle to, to include our enemies? Love your enemies. And this wasn't just a theory, obviously, this was something that she embodied in front of the very people who would eventually extinguish her life from the face of this earth. Her last note was written on a train leaving for Auschwitz, and she threw it from the train, and it was found by Dutch farmers, and it read, let them know that we left singing. So I want to understand or at least I want to try to understand, make a good faith attempt to try to understand how someone like Etty came to understand Christ's command to love our enemies. I want to try to understand how someone like Etty came to understand Christ's command so that it seeps into the very inner core of our entire being. I think first of all, love your enemies, it, for her wasn't just a moral instruction and people like her, and we'll come to people like her in a minute as well, okay. For her and people like her, this isn't just a moral instruction. And it's not just utilitarianism. Hey, look, this is what works, right? This, this, is, what, this is what works, as in don't jump into the pool, you know, right after eating. Stand back from the track, right? Oh, and love your enemies, because this is utilitarian. This is what works. No, that, that's, that's not what this is. And it's not just a sort of higher personal ethic or a, a better personal spirituality. It, it may be that, but it wasn't just that. I think for Etty and people like her, encoded, encoded in this command to love is the, is the final goal of Christian eschatology. Eschatology, if you remember, as we've said, is, the, is this idea that history is moving somewhere. It's going somewhere. As, as crazy as it may seem, history, as, despite all appearances, God is actually moving history to a final purpose. And, and as crazy as that may sound, this is actually, as we've said before, the foundation for so much modern, secular, Western thinking. Anyone who talks about progress, whenever that word passes their lips, is possessed of this idea. Or under some other guise. And so, underpinning Jesus' command is this conviction that God is taking this world to the place, to some place, where everything and everyone is going to be reconciled to him and they are going to be reconciled to each other. 
And, and so to refuse to do this is not simply to, to break a command or, or you know, not follow the rules. It's, it's not just that. It may be that, but it's more than that. It may reflect the understand that we don't actually understand where everything, everything is heading. I'm reminded of another camp um, 50 years later after Etty's experience in Westerbork. It was a refugee camp on the border of Rwanda and uh, Kenya shortly after the genocide where two million people were slaughtered and the rivers ran with bodies and with blood. And as many of you know, our friend Celestin Musakura lost his own uh, friends and family um, in, in this genocide, including his own mom, at least for a year. And as he was standing one day, he didn't have a Bible with him that day, apparently. Someone lent him a Bible, and he started preaching in this refugee camp. And um, suddenly, someone's pushing through the crowd, and, and suddenly out of this crowd steps his mother after a year. Couldn't believe it. It was just this very joyful and very tearful reunion. Um, as many of you know, Celestin is a founder of Alarm. It's African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries, and they are working to prevent genocide, and they are working to bring reconciliation and end tribal conflicts. In, in, they work in eight different African nations. They've trained now over 200,000 leaders, police, military, judges, lawyers, um, uh, religious leaders, politicians, members of parliament, you name it, they've, they've been working, 200,000 leaders. But it wasn't always that way. Uh, in, in fact, um, when they first got going, we, we met him in the first year of Alarm's founding. And I'll never forget, and some of you know this story, I'll never forget when, when he said, when you, when you go in, and he was looking for his friends and family, is what he was doing in the refugee camps, first of all, looking for friends and family. And he started to preach and announce the gospel of forgiveness and love and reconciliation and peace. And he says, you think people embrace you and accept you when, that, when, when you do that? He says, no. What they do is they beat you up and they leave you for dead. And that's exactly what happened to Celestin. Beat him up, left him for dead. And, and it just so happened there was this woman who was getting water from that side of refugee camp. And she saw him still breathing. And so she dragged his unconscious body back to her tent and nursed him until he could walk again. And, and even to this day, he, he suffers from back problems because, because of that in, encounter. So yes, on the one hand, as some sort of abstract, arbitrary command, love your enemies doesn't make sense. And it didn't make sense to any of those people in that refugee camp that day when Celestin walks in and, and starts repeating these words right here. It made no sense. But again, if you talk to Celestin, he will tell you that hating our enemies, limiting our love to those who already love us, only embracing our own people, Celestin says, it's not just a case of breaking a rule or having, having the wrong personal ethic or being a little less spiritual. It means we just don't understand where everything is going. Because to love your enemies is essentially to call God's future, to bring God's future forward. To love our enemies is essentially to, to embody right here, right now, what God has in store for the rest of humanity, his ultimate goal. It is, if you like, the Christian view of history brought to a very sharp point. There may be someone who has hurt you very badly, and you can't imagine, it's hard to imagine forgiving that person or loving that person or being friends with that person. 
and uh, maybe there's someone who's just difficult to love, right? We've got those, isn't there some sort of spectrum, isn't there? There's people who are difficult to love, and sometimes on certain days they spill over into being our enemy and then back into the category of difficult to love. But they're always somewhere in that region. To a greater or lesser degree, we've all got people somewhere in our orbit who, who fit that, that description. Maybe you, you've got someone in particular, even as I'm talking about this right now, and you thought about them just now. That's why you grimaced. It's okay, I can't see you grimace behind your mask, so that's, that's okay. Well, we're not alone, right? If you've got someone specific in mind, as we acknowledged right at the beginning of this, right, just now, when Jesus speaks these words for the first time, imagine these words spoken for the first time into the world, hadn't been spoken before, and then Jesus says, love your enemies. These people had, he didn't have to describe who the enemy was. Everyone knew who the enemy was. They were under that occupation. Death and taxes are the most certain thing in life, they say, and the Romans made that a truism. So Jesus is, is 100% fully aware. He understands the problematic nature. Oh, that's problematic. Yes, he understands the problematic nature of, he knows exactly what he is asking them to do. And so the way he frames this command is just as important as the command itself. He says, but I tell you, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So what Jesus does is he embeds this command in this very particular view of God and the history of the world, in which God continues through the ages to make his appeal, sending the Son, sending the rain, sending the sun, sending the rain on the evil and on the good, waiting for reconciliation. And so if Jesus invites us to hear this command in that context, then we, we need to work to hear this in that context, right? It's no good, it's no good taking this command and abstracting it from, from this story and put it, putting it elsewhere. We, we need to hear it in the way that Jesus frames it. Personally, reading Jesus' words around this command has, has, has been incredibly helpful for me because when, when I found it difficult to love someone and I can't imagine reconciliation, rather than focus on my personal conflict and my personal hurt and my personal enmity, this often helped me, not simply to set aside my hurt feelings and, and, and not just to, to stuff those feelings deep down, but rather to place my person, very real personal conflict and my very real hurt and very real feelings of enmity in the broader context of God's ambition for humanity. And I really believe people like Etty and people like Celestin, that that's, they're operating, or at least they work very hard to operate on that plane, that vast plane of God's ambition so that it's no longer just about me and the person I don't like. It's so easy, really easy for it to become about me and the person I don't like. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an expert at that, but it's no longer about me and the person I don't like, but there's more at stake. Jesus is inviting me to participate in God's future now. Jesus is asking me to get involved in God's project of cosmic reconciliation. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the evil and the good. And so perhaps before we can imagine our way into reconciliation with our personal enemies, we have to imagine our way into that story first. I think that's why Jesus frames it this way.
And for those of us who are think, still thinking, I can't, I just can't, I don't know, I can't imagine being reconciled to this person. I, I can't imagine wholehearted forgiveness with this person who's really hurt me. Well, Jesus gives us a place to begin. He says, look, pray for those who persecute you. He says, love your enemies. And immediately after that, he suggests a starting place. Pray for those who persecute you. And prayer is such a, a crucial part of re reforming the, the Christian, cultivating the Christian imagination. We'll talk about this more next week. Lord's Prayer next week. That's a revolutionary prayer. We'll come to that. But he says, just okay, you, you can't imagine loving your mortal enemy. Pray for them. Or how about you start by greeting them, those who are not your own. I can just imagine the whispers. Did he just ask me to greet one of the occupation soldiers? Yeah, I think that's exactly what he asked me to do. I can only imagine how these words might hit our Christian brothers and sisters who are reading them today in Ukraine. A different kind of weight to them. We often say, oh yeah, I'm going to jump to Jesus' side. Yeah, that, we should do that. Really? <laughs> Wait till we're occupied. You know, even the people who I, I look to and go, wow, they're just streets ahead of me. Spiritually, I don't even understand how people like this and like this, our friend Sasa, who works in Myanmar, our friend Celestine working in, in Africa, I, I look at them and go, wow, they're just streets ahead of me spiritually. I, I don't know. How do you get there? How do you get there? Well, here's, here's the thing. Both of these guys on different continents, right, have both got very similar stories about, for Celestine, it was the police chief, and for uh, Sasa, it, it was the army and a general in the army. And they they, these people had used violence against their friends, against their family, and they had come with the express purpose to destroy and tear apart their work. The work of health and hope and the work of alarm. They come, and both of them turned that general and turned that police chief from an enemy and into their friend and into one of their greatest advocates. How do you do that? <laughs> How do, you, how do you turn someone who's come to destroy your work into uh, someone who's come to persecute you into your friend and your greatest advocate? This is a, seems like a very, very complex, super spiritual process. You know how it started for both of those guys? It started by asking these, this general and this police chief, how are you? How are you doing? And, and, and they didn't want to answer. And how is your family? At first they were angry. But it broke them down. How are you? And how is your family? It's a really simple first step. Feels like anyone could do that. Can't underestimate it. So Jesus says, start here. <laughs> Jesus says, start here. Start by greeting them. Start by praying for them. Can you reconcile right now and have an entirely restored relationship with your enemy today? That may take time and that may take work. Don't start there. Start here. We have to practice this in various ways at different levels of intensity with different relationships. And by doing so, we feed the Christian imagination for this and open up that possibility. You know, Raph was talking earlier about what it, that we didn't get here. It just overnight, right? There's been 30 years of history of one step after another from one side and the other that has led us here. Can't underestimate those small steps and the consequences that they have. So, of course, I have to ask you this question. Who are you going to pray for? Who are you going to pray for? And who are you going to greet? Who is that, that group of people who are not your own? 
who you don't relate to, who you're going to start reaching out to. Let's just start there. Praying and greeting. Greeting and praying. Because that can spark our imaginations for something else. This is a crucial work because the Christian community that cannot imagine the possibility of being reconciled with our enemies it's not a Christian community at all. Because loving our enemies so that we have no enemies is the goal of all Christian hope and history. It is the Jesus view of history brought to a sharp point. Let us pray. So on this day we may think of someone or some group of people we don't like. Let's take a moment to think about them. People we find hard to love. Maybe sometimes we even hate them. Take a moment to name maybe someone you know personally. Maybe it's a more abstract concept of a group of people, but think about them. Father, we thank you for examples of people like Etty and Celestine and Sasa, who took those very simple steps of greeting and praying, and in the end loving their enemies. Help us to greet, and help us to pray for our enemies, that we may love them, and love them well, and in doing so bring your future forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.